Welcome to Invest Stories, a podcast about real stories, real estate, and taking real action. Join hosts John Cooper and Kyle Robertson as they talk investing, mindset, and taking that first step. We all have a story. What's yours? The Invest Stories Podcast. Booyah! Welcome to the Investories Podcast with me, your host, John Hooper, and Kyle. my co-host. Oh, I said it too fast, didn't I? Yeah. This is, this is Kyle. I trapped you. <laughs> I sound like my, my voicemail recording when I said that. This is this Kyle. This is Kyle. Yeah. Is that what you get? Is that, that, you're not that professional, are you? I really, yeah, you should listen to it. Yeah. It's Mine just bad. says, what do you want? I think I recorded it in like 2020. Does it really? <laughs> no, I don't even know. I don't think I got one. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, we should probably we should probably talk about <laughs> podcasting. Is that your chair that keeps creaking? Oh, Kyle? can you hear that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I need to, I need to get some. W I was like, Kyle's either got a parrot or his chair's creaking. Let's go with the parrot thing. That's good. Yeah, I quite like that. Here you go. We need a show mascot. <laughs> the Investories podcast. Any the Investories parrot. Yeah. <laughs> Children's book. Oh. Yeah. There you go. Anyway, we're not here to talk about children's literature. We're here to talk about um, investing and uh, specifically creative finance and subject two, because this is our last creative financing season show. Yes. Are you sad, Kyle? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I love creative financing. I use it all the time. I, there's just so much out there that I, yeah. I, would, I know that you and I both want to bring to our listeners that... We've probably beat this dead horse. We've been on this this seller or this uh, creative financing kick for it's been months. So we're going to start pivoting into some pretty exciting stuff. So everybody needs to stay tuned to that. When we started it, it wasn't cool. Then it was cool, and now it's not cool again. Right? Yeah. That's it. Ebbs and flow. We're like your dad's leather jacket. Yeah, we're like interest rates. <laughs> oh yeah, there we go. That's oh. way more relevant. So today we've got uh, Michael Manatsakani. Did I say it right? No, you did not. <laughs> I knew it. It's Manat Sakanian. Manat Sakanian. Yes. I'm just joking. Um, yeah, so Michael is um, a, he's done creative financing in Alaska and in California and a few other places, but literally across the US and that little bit top left near Russia. Um, and he's he's done creative deals and, and most recently sub two deals. And interestingly, growing that into a business that has that inflow and, and has that complete um, you know, I guess process engine is probably not a bad way to say it of bringing in deals, um, identifying opportunities, writing offers, and kind of defining the exit strategy all around creative and sub two. So there's a lot of uh, sub two kind of tactics and and how to how to do that, how to look at deals and um, get that flow started. Yeah, and it give you a lot of confidence too, because you know he he he's got an engineer's mind. He thinks about numbers and and um, this isn't the only type of investing that he does. We talk about the way that he got his start in the investing space, which was not real estate. And um, and he, he kind of he walked us through it in a way where it was very achievable, I think, for, for pretty much anybody. So, But he does talk a lot about the creative finance stuff because he's made a, a, a name for himself and, and become very successful on the creative platform. So um, definitely check this one out. Yeah, and uh, here's the episode. Welcome to Investories, Michael Matsakanian. Did I say it wrong or you right? Missed it. I missed the you end, did. right? Any tips, Sorry. Mike? Yeah, just say every single letter you see there, nice and easy. <laughs> there, you, there you go. I'm not going to do it again. It's going to go even worse. Here, I'll give you. I'll give you one. It's Manatsakanian. Manatsakanian. Oh. So you pronounce it with a, a vowel sound between the M and the N, then. Man- yeah. Not not mana. It's mana. Man- yeah, it's like a. It's like M-U-H is how I phonetically ah, spell gotcha. it out. Like, okay. wow. that's, that's much easier. You should have started with that. Yeah. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. <laughs> welcome to Investories, which is all now all about the English language and how people from England can't speak. So, <laughs> always good. Always good. Mike, lovely to have you here. Uh, welcome. Um, you were asking about cussing. If you want to cuss, you can get that out of the way right now. Yeah, I just, it's like, I just make sure because I... It might accidentally slip a few times, so I just want to be like, oh. We just, never do that. Was that yeah. a no-no? We, we've got yeah. four- and five-year-olds that listen to how to invest in real estate here, so we prefer you not. 
<laughs> hey, we like them to start out young. Yeah, my daughter's two and a half, but she cusses like a trooper, so <laughs> it's, it's fine. So, Mike, you've got a super interesting story in terms of um, you've kind of your, your real estate career straddles the entire country, basically from Alaska to California. Yes, uh, so we're going to get into that. Um, in terms of right now, you're in your W two still and investing, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Yep. So can you give W2. us the, can you give us the kind of run in from maybe high school, college into where you're at now and kind of the the journey into real estate? Yeah, so definitely. Um, so high school, I was uh, I was a great student, you know, straight A student. I thought my best path to financial freedom, that's always been really important for me. First generation American. So, you know, the dream, the American dream of go become a doctor was always kind of the goal. So studied really hard, uh, got into UC San Diego. That's where I went and uh, studied neuroscience physiology for the first year and a half. Realized I definitely don't want to be a doctor after doing a lot of volunteering and just like was not was not it for me. I did not enjoy that. How long it would take to get there. I didn't want to start my actual career in my 30s. Um, and then so I pivoted to chemical engineering. I wanted to do something where it was more problem solving focused. That's a skill set that I've always had. Uh, math, science, really enjoy that kind of stuff. So studied chemical engineering. And during that time, I really started uh, in addition to a variety of other passions like sustainability, the environment have always been very important to me. Um, so I really got my inroads into personal finance and really basic stuff. Um, I mean, simple stuff, but not easy for most people to do, right? So just the simple equation, right? Like your savings equals your income minus your expenses. So either I'm reducing my expenses or increasing my income. Otherwise I can't save. If I can't save, I can't invest. And if I can't invest, I won't be able to retire early, which was always been my goal. So really started with the basic foundation of that. A lot of generic stock market investing, things like that. And then um, graduated UCSD, started working, you know, chemical engineering jobs. Wasn't really into it. You know, the field of chemical engineering actually kind of sucks, pays well, but it kind of sucks. So I actually pivoted to environmental engineering and joined the army. So I was in the army for four years, including living up in Alaska for a couple of those years, which was uh, pretty awesome. Actually, I really loved it. And that's where I got my start to real estate investing. I was learning about real estate for years prior to that, but I finally took action when I was in Alaska. Um, And that all started with a house hack. And yeah, I could go into any real estate things that, you know, starting from there. The first question I want to ask is how did the stock investing go? So for me, it was great, right? (laughs) Because like, it's been great. And I don't invest, like I don't really invest in individual stocks, except I did invest in Tesla at the time, which was phenomenal because I sold out once I got smarter about diversification. So I got very lucky that that one exploded in a couple uh, like, uh, like NVIDIA and stuff like that. Like those were just, companies that I knew a little bit about and invested there. But primarily, I just invest in the S&P 500, expecting 9 to 10% annualized returns over a long time period, inflation adjusted down to 7, 8%. And like, as long as I keep investing a certain amount, I'll be able to retire at 45 and then 40. And then, you know, trying to bring that timeline sooner and sooner through the stock market. And even my transition to real estate investing, I was always extremely, extremely conservative in regards to how much I was willing to put in to get into a deal. Um, to, to take ownership of property. So that's where house hacking made it so easy, especially with my VA loan, I was able to get in 0%. Yeah. And then FHA loan, 3.5%. So like I got uh, six units with total 3.5% down payment amongst those two properties. So it was like, that was the easy start for me to not have to divert away from my real estate investing or not have to divert away from my stock market investing. And, um, and then from there, I, I realized, okay, well, like I said, either I can increase my income or I can reduce my expenses. And my thought was, all right, if I'm house hacking a small multifamily, someone's going to help me pay off some of my mortgage. And the way it was in Alaska is cash flows immensely. I mean, it's really great. There's just only, it's a very transient type of state. So people are constantly coming in and out and not a lot of people want to own homes. So the rent to price is really great there. And not only was I able to offset my uh, mortgage payment, but... They, I was actually able to make money on top of that as well while actually occupying one of the units. So for me, it was like a no-brainer when it came to the numbers. Because before that, when I was in San Diego, underwriting deals forever, like I never took action because it just didn't make logical sense. I didn't want to put a down payment down and then lose money every month. So yeah. it really helped being in the right market to uh, start. And that's really why I got into 
wholesaling, off-market deal finding, and creative financing because I was able to structure deals with little to no money down. Like, I don't think if it wasn't for house hacking and creative financing, I don't know if I'd really be into real estate. I don't like putting 25% down on a property. So I think that's one thing we never talk about on here, John, is we don't mm-hmm. discuss stock market investing. And mainly because, I mean, I, I do invest in the stock market, but not probably not mm-hmm. to the level that the average person does. It's more of leftover retirement accounts from past W-2 jobs, you know. Um, what was scarier for you? Was it was the stock market easier? Was real estate investing scary like it is for a lot of people who never do end up taking action? So what was what was that like? Yeah, 100%. The stock market is like a million percent easier. It's so much easier. All I do is passively invest in uh, index funds that basically track the total U.S. economy. So I know I'm going to get a guaranteed return, not over a short time period, and not if I just invest $5 today, it's going to grow into you know a million bucks. But if you're actively dollar cost averaging, just constantly buying over a long time period, like the U.S. economy has shown us over the last century plus that as long as you just keep actively investing, whether we're going into a recession, depression, whatever, if, you're, if you have a long time horizon, your money's going to grow on average at 10%, you know, over a long time period. So if you so for the, me, that was a lot of safety uh, was just knowing that just looking at the numbers, because all I can do is look at the numbers and you can't really save yourself to retirement. It's impossible. You need some type of compounding effect, whether it's stock market investing. I don't even care if you're investing in CDs or bonds or I mean, that's going to be a lot tougher. Right. But or real estate, you need you need to have your work, your savings compound on itself. It, it has to be growing um, you can't, yeah, it's really tough to save yourself to retirement unless you have a really high W-2 income, but, you know, teach their own. Like, that's not yeah, what I wanted. It's the time horizon piece, right? We're doing that for my daughter, which is putting a couple of hundred bucks a month into a into two, in, well, an index fund and a semiconductor development fund, mm-hmm. and then just letting that snowball and snowball. And in 20 years, she's going to have a pretty good uh, little nest egg at the, at the end of it. But yeah, that... The, the trading up, trading down, kind of uh, day trading, shorting mm-hmm. is, yeah, that for me, that's that's kind of terrible. Yeah, In it's terms nerve-wracking. Can, very can I much. actually give you one story? So, of course. Uh, I, I mentioned you guys offline before that I think that I got really lucky with some individual Tesla stocks. And I was, and for, you know, just coming out of college, I had maybe 20, 30K gains from some Tesla stocks. And then I decided, you know what? I am a killer. Like I'm so good at the stock market. <laughs> I need to start day trading. So I did some option trading on Tesla when, and it's always been really volatile, but it was extremely volatile. And my thought was, okay, it's going to keep going up. So let me just buy call options basically. And that's like the returns and the losses are like exponential. It's like a hundred X plus, like it's terrible, but it can be great for returns. So I did that. All the money went into that and virtually over the weekend, I didn't understand like the volatility plays in fact time horizon of your option contracts whatever i virtually lost all 30k <laughs> like like i didn't lose it but it, it, the value of that contract went to virtually zero and i was like what do i do now that's more money than i've ever spent on all the cars i have that's more money than i've spent like i could have bought i always compared it to like six of those costco massage chairs like those really nice ones <laughs> like i could have bought six of those guys i could have done so many things with that money i could have gone all these vacations and i got lucky that because Tesla's so volatile. It actually did bounce back and I was able to break even. I think I made like 50 bucks. I was so thankful and I was like, all right, that was like the worst. And it was from Friday to Monday. So I had to feel those losses all weekend. Just think about like, I'm going to tell my wife, I'm like, like all these yeah, things. Right. So it's just the worst feeling ever. And I was like, I'm just done. I hate that. So my thought is if I'm going to do something risky, it's got to be real estate because I feel like I have more control over it than just, yeah. you know, either be safe with the stock market over a long time horizon very diversified or be more risky, like risky with real estate because I have a lot more control over that. Yeah. Tangible assets. It, it, it gives you a little bit more confidence too. Although it's a, you know, oftentimes a bigger dollar amount out of pocket, mm-hmm. depending on what you're doing. But I was also in Tesla. I still am actually. So I wrote it up and then I wrote it all the way back down again <laughs> and I still have them. So it's one of those, you, you don't lose till you sell type things, but mm-hmm. I'm just keeping my fingers crossed. You know, one of these days we'll, I'm thinking Cybertruck release. Maybe we'll finally get another big bump, but we'll see. It's mostly economic driven anyways. But uh, anyways, back to the stuff that we came here to talk about, uh, real estate. 
So you you purchased your first place and you had you ended up buying six of them up in Alaska. Is that correct? Actually, I bought twenty six units up in Alaska. I twenty and was sold this all this while you were in the service. Mm-hmm. Yep, it was okay. Yep. Tell all us that. a little bit about that. So you you bought one and then that gave you some confidence that everything was going well. And so what what made you want to scale? What made you feel like okay, real estate's the vehicle that I want to put all of my eggs in? What was what was that that aha moment for you? Yeah, so let me. Uh, I guess I can start from that from the first house hack and how it kind of progressed. But I will say that I still have never put all my eggs in real estate. I still invest a lot of my W two income into the stock market. I live in California, so there's a lot of tax advantage. You know, savings. I can save a lot on taxes through the stock market. And like I said, I try to buy real estate with little to no money down as much as I can. But that first property, I was underwriting deals for like two years. I finally joined my first RIA and met other investors who were doing it. And I'm like, okay, these guys are actually buying properties here. Like they, they're actually doing it right now. They're not just, there are plenty of people just talk about it, but they're physically buying real estate here. And I met my first investor agent and he was a blessing because I was underwriting deals, but never confident to pull the trigger. Well, at one point I had this phenomenal deal. It was just so obvious. It was right at the start of COVID. So that's actually when I got into escrow, we put in the offer. The deal was a bank. It was a bank owned foreclosure property. Everyone was afraid to buy everything for a moment and lending was pretty tight, but I think it was a combination of VA loan, first time home buyer, all that kind of stuff. Maybe they let me kind of squeak through and I was able to get this property with 40k of equity just day one while buying it with little with zero money rolled you know all the expenses i could into that va loan and uh it was like kind of an awkward duplex like the downstairs unit like was missing walls that had curtains because they used it as a commercial space so the bedrooms were like curtained off i was like cool i can build like we can build walls whatever that's easy we can build non-load bearing walls and the upstairs unit was like a really small three by three they really like maximized the bedroom and bathroom count, but the living room kitchen was like laid out terribly. So I was like, okay, this is something I can work with, but structurally it was great. So that was the first one spent that first year, uh, you know, renovating that property, had a tenant in day one. I mean, in three days we got one of the units turned and had someone in right away. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I got someone paying me every month to buy this. And it was just like the most, or to rent my place. It was like the most amazing feeling ever. Cause I felt like I had so much direct control over how that happened. Um, and then over that next year, we just kept rehabbing the property. And then I realized, you know, kept underwriting deals again. And once I was, I knew that 10 months after I purchased that first one, I could pretty easily buy a second multifamily to house hack. Um, it was a tough one because I went from a two unit to a four unit. So I had to explain why I would want to do that. And, you know, I just explained location, whatever. So there was a little bit of explaining to the lender why I would want to do something like that. But then I, once again, I just underwrote so many deals. I was probably underwriting every single small multifamily in like my local market of Fairbanks, Alaska. And this one was just such a great deal. So, you know, pull the trigger on that and, so then I went from two units to uh, six units, just like that, from the duplex to the fourplex, um, six units. And then I really loved the idea that I was able to buy these small multifamilies, house hack them a little to no money down. But the issue was that it felt slow. So then that's when I started getting into creative financing and off-market deal finding and joined my first official mentorship, I guess, to be able to uh, basically learn about seller financing that's all I knew about creative financing at the time was seller financing and finding deals off market. And that's how I was able to really scale um, outside of just house hacking every year. So I can go into that or I can address whatever other questions. Yeah, I have a question. So you said about, um, and for me, it's, I'm one of these people about most people being filled with dread for like a foreclosure, buying a foreclosure. How did you, how did you find that deal and how did you, like run the numbers and then actually buy it what does that process look like so i don't even know if it was like a foreclosure or bake owned property or whatever it was it was on the mls it was no different and the agent was like working with the bank the the seller's agent the seller was the bank they just didn't want it right they foreclosed on this property they didn't want to and this property was bought for like 60 70 like 80k more than i bought it for and 
and yeah, it was sold like a year prior for like 80 K more than I bought it for. So like, it was just amazing. Like just looking at it from that regards, but it was just like a conventional purchase. Like the seller wasn't like a person. It was the bank, but I still negotiated. Like I said, I really wanted to come in as little money down. So I negotiated seller credits. I negotiated, like, I didn't really care about purchase price too much because I knew I was walking into equity, but, um, I really cared about, okay, what can you do to reduce all of my expenses to, to buy this property? Um, and this was even, you know, when we were in the 2% interest rate time, right? So two, 3% interest rate time. And I was trying to negotiate as much of that stuff as possible, just so I can reduce my expenses. It was, to me, it felt no different than just a regular MLS transaction. It was, nothing was different about it. And when you, so other, other areas of deal finding, you mentioned that you have kind of focused on some off-market deals. And we talked a lot about off-market deals on here. And you can let me know if, if you agree or disagree with what I'm going to say here. But um, it sounds like everybody's looking for off-market deals. You know, nobody wants to go on MLS. And, and it kind of feels like a, you know, I, I think maybe, you know, five years ago before the real estate boom happened, the off-market deals were you could find some really good stuff. You had a lot more, maybe some motivated sellers. Um, they don't have to pay real estate commissions. There's a lot of bonuses for sellers to sell in that way. Now, when I look at off-market deals, and my game's multifamily, I'm getting sent off-market deals by, you know, wholesalers. And sometimes, you know, a a lot of commercial agents will have pocket listings because that's usually the way that commercial works in the first place. But they're sending them to these people on their CRM with, you know, thousands of people that they're, you know, other potential buyers. And so I'm actually finding a lot of these things, you know, it's almost like it's shifted back to the MLS, on-market deals are almost the better deals these days, at least where I'm purchasing and the type of assets that I'm purchasing. Are you seeing the same thing as off-market still is lucrative when compared to on-market? So we market both. I guess I'm saying off-market because we do do direct to seller. Um, For sure, there's certain motivations that we target and we're generating our own deals. I mean, we work with wholesalers typically, but we work with them to convert their cash deals to a creative deal if that's possible. but yeah, wholesalers kind of suck, right? Like there's just so many wholesalers, there's no barrier to entry. And even if they, just because someone has a deal locked up and, and I used to do a lot of trainings for people on underwriting deals, it's kind of numbers has always been my thing. And the first thing that I would say is like 99% of properties you see are never going to be a good real estate investment. So people think just because they have a uh, uh, purchase and sale agreement or they get someone something off market, like, oh, cool, here's a real estate investment. Like I should be doing this. It's like, that's not the case. You still always have to underwrite it. And a lot of wholesalers that bring deals are really bad at underwriting deals or you just don't know how they're underwriting it, right? So we really generate a lot of our own off-market deals. In regards to your question about off-market, on-market, we do both. I've always done both. I love, you know, on-market. Um, it's just on-market is that much more challenging when it comes to the creative space. On-market's great if you want to buy a commercial, uh, commercial, a conventional property, Uh, or through a conventional loan or cash, you can pretty much, you can do that somewhat well. Um, All of my initial purchases were um, on market and uh, just like regular traditional uh, purchases. Same with the three unit we got in San Diego was on market um, because I had a VA loan that I wanted to utilize for that. Um, But in regards to structuring creative deals, usually off market works better or certain types of on market deals, whether they're high days on market, Maybe they have low equity. Maybe they're going through something. Um, the property is about to go into probate, or it's uh, someone just moved out of state and now just you know, or recently bought it a year ago and doesn't like I said doesn't have a lot of equity. So we really target specific motivations on market. But I still look at plenty of properties on market, like traditionally, and underwrite them and see if they make sense. It's just within a high interest rate market, I don't want to deal with uh, conventional loans. If I know I can generate, if I know I can take over someone's existing debt, that's in the two, three, four percent range, or I can get a seller finance deal where I don't have to deal with all of the hassle of buying something through the bank. And I've like, I mean, I've house hacked so many small multifamilies, like my DTI is all over the place, right? So it's like I have, a, you know, creative financing is also allowing me just to buy a lot more deals than I could otherwise, Especially with the low, for me, really, like I said, it's a low down payment. And on market, you're almost always going to have to do that. Commercial is a little different, right? But for a residential 
purchase, they're going to want to know where that money came from. You can't just like, oh, here's my PML for everything. Like they're, they're going to want to know the money somehow flow through you or they're going to have to take ownership of that property as well with you. So those are some of the reasons why I kind of. Yeah, a little, little bit of seasoning as well in, in, mm-hmm. in where the money's come from, where's it been sitting, that kind of stuff is always interesting. And interesting you said about the, the DTI piece because that's where as people scale, they, uh, you know, debt to income ratio can kind of get exhausted and um, mm-hmm. it, it gets tricky for the traditional route. In terms of um, perhaps you can talk to your, your deal flow at the moment. So how um, properties come in, how you analyze them and then how you decide to make a a creative offer or a traditional offer or put them back out to to the market can you talk us through that process yeah so we basically have deal flow flow from three different areas so we jv with people uh within creative finance communities or whatever wholesalers like i mentioned and try to convert their deals to creative if possible um so are we, yeah, so we JV with people, especially people who think they have a warm lead and don't know how to take a property to the finish line. So we'll basically uh, split the assignment. If we're going to wholesale it together, we'll split the assignment on that and we'll help show them every step of the way of, hey, you think you have a warm lead because this person is a motivated seller. Um, cool. Let's let's work together on this deal. We'll help you lock it up under contract. We'll help with negotiation, transaction coordination, uh, disposition or selling it to an end buyer. Or my business partner and I end up buying the deals as well. So that's that's one route. Like I said, we do something similar with wholesalers, but we have specific partnerships with really good wholesalers and markets that we like to buy in. And then we convert those to creative. And we also have our own wholesale team. Basically, I guess I have two wholesale teams. My business partner. Um, so I didn't mention this yet, but uh, I have a business partner, um, Adam Catledge, and we started Coast to Coast Vets. So we're basically nationwide buyers, ideally of creative deals. We have properties in Alaska, California, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia. You know, we're buying more and we wholesale all like the, a, a ton of other states. So basically, we generate deals through like uh, we basically partner with people to educate them on creative financing and then help and then help them build rapport with agents or uh, sellers and then kind of show them how to do that initial data gathering uh, lead generation phase. And then we help close the deals and dispo them and all that. And then I also use the traditional like virtual assistant route where I have virtual assistants targeting specific uh, lists where they're doing text blasting, cold calling. It's a lot less personal, um, you know, but that we, so I kind of have that generation method as well. But the end goal for us is to always buy deals. So we try to underwrite deals very conservatively as if we're always the end buyer. And sometimes we have enough capital to purchase ourselves. Sometimes we have enough private money lending partners or equity partners to help us purchase those deals because we don't have to prove where those funds come from to anyone, right? Because we're just working directly with the seller typically. Um, and then other times, you know, maybe it's in a state that we don't want to own property. And for example, we'll wholesale a ton in Florida and Texas. I just don't like the volatility. I, like I said, I'm very conservative. So I like stability. So I don't like the volatility of property taxes and insurance just getting jacked up year over year. I don't like that uncertainty. So it's for us, it's better to make 10, 20, 30 K on an assignment than it is to own that property, you know, long-term. So that's kind of our decision-making process. And we're always underwriting for kind of ridiculous criteria when you hear it um, relative to like a conventional buyer. And I can expand kind of what our buy box is, but we, uh, tell you what the insurance thing especially this year has just been disgusting and i'm in oregon so i'm not in a high risk state you know we don't have big natural disasters here all the time it just rains for nine and a half months out of the year but i still had a 30 percent increase in in insurance which is actually was a 40 percent increase in insurance which is just an outrageous amount um but i think you know insurance is is a it's an interesting beast you know, any, anybody, you know, you look at these, these big companies and if they have a nasty season down in Florida or a bunch of tornadoes tore through Arkansas and destroyed, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in buildings, guess who gets to pay for all that? Well, everybody else who's on their ledger. And uh, it's just kind of a, it's almost become systemic in a way. And it's, it's, it's really painful, but um, I'm glad that you brought up partnerships just because we like talking about partnerships on here. It's it, every partnership is different. It's always unique. I, I'm curious how, first of all, was your partner, your partner from the beginning? And if not, how did you finally decide that it made more sense to, to start a partnership? Yeah. So that's definitely a great question. And actually 
I don't think I'd be in real estate now if I didn't uh, decide it was time to partner. So as I mentioned, I was doing pretty much everything on my own with a small multi small multifamily house hacking and then some of the off-market deal finding. Um, so I got on my own up to 27 rental units and that burnt me out of real estate. I mean, I was almost just exhausted. I mean, I was property managing, I was bookkeeping, I was finding my deals, finding my deals, every part of it, um, negotiating everything and it burnt me out. And once I started, the first partnerships we'll say that I had was partnering with property managers, just offloading some of the work uh, a bookkeeper, a CPA, whatever I could to offload the work for myself. And then um, when I wanted to get into wholesaling, I partnered with another uh, new wholesaler just so we can learn together. And just splitting the responsibilities was so valuable for me. And we had different, we had complementary skill sets. So that was my first true partnership. And um, doing that and seeing how when I try to do it on my own, it took months just to get maybe a 10K assignment. Then partnering with someone, we were able to quickly get over 100K uh, in assignments within the first year of doing that. And I was like, okay, wait, there's something to this. And um, when I decided that I wanted to continue with real estate, continue growing my pro, uh, portfolio, I partnered with another very like-minded uh, military or veteran. Um, and we were just on the same exact wavelength. We had the same work ethic. And, you know, we did... we. When I partner, I partner with someone, we we just date for a little bit, right? So we say, no LLC, nothing contractually obligated. You know, we'll date for 30, 60, 90 days preset. If we like it, we move forward. If we don't, you know, we'll stop it. It's perfect. No, no harm, no foul. So we did that for 90 days and quickly blew a lot of our uh, goals out of the water. And then just like, I don't even think it took 60 days. We just said, hey, all right, let's create our LLC. We do this for five years with one-year options after that. And it's just been great. And it's really helped me scale up massively and him because he's got more visionary tendencies. He loves to talk to people and I like to talk to people, but you know, I don't like to actively negotiate more than I have to with a seller or agent. Um, he likes to, he's got really great, big, grand ideas where I'm much more of like the engineer mindset. Like, okay, well, how are we going to do that? Like, what systems do we need in place? How are we going to scale to that point? Uh, what CRM are we going to use? What blah, 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 blah. Like, I think of all those things while he's like, all right, we need to start this wholesale team. Cool. All right. Let me figure out how we're going to do that. And then let's execute. So we really balance each other out in that regards, but have very similar work ethic and goals. So I think that has really helped, but just, we wouldn't know that until we like went through our dating period. So I think I've always mentioned that like if I partner with people, it's always a strategic partnership. There's got to be some true goal behind it, not just partnering to do it arbitrarily, but partnering because we can complement each other and achieve more together than we ever could independently. And, and taking that dating analogy, how how did that work in terms of swiping through um, potential partners? Um, is I guess you go on, on the a lot of Facebook groups and everyone needs a partner and everyone needs money. And I, I wonder how you kind of filter that down. Was there a specific group you were in or a mentorship or anything like that? Yeah. So I'm part of a couple mentorships, but the one that I'm most notably part of that most people know about is the sub two mentorship with Pace Morby. Um, that's really where I exploded my understanding of creative financing. It went from just seller financing to subject to lease options, egg, variety of creative exits, you know, sober living homes, wraps, whatever. And I just uh, was part of the Zoom calls, in-person meetups, and just started seeing the same person over and over again. And actually, it was my wife that um, talked to him at a meetup. And it was like, she she told him, she's like, she told him to come talk to me because there's just a lot of similarities. And as soon as we talked, it just clicked because I spent... My first month in sub two, they always say, and most people say this, right? Just your first job is to just network and like connect with like 50 people as soon as you can, just to get, get an understanding of like who's around you, what are they doing? How can you potentially help each other? And after talking to probably to 20, 30 people, like it was just like instant with him that I knew like, you know, because I talked to a lot of other people and like, I don't even know how to explain it. Like it just felt right to say, okay, let's move forward with like, the dating phase and just give this a trial run and see how it goes. So I think going in always with an open mind, connecting with people, uh, just to connect with people, just to learn more about what they're doing and then seeing if there's some synergy in regards to your goals and then synergy in regards to like work ethic. I knew, I mean, 20 plus year uh, retired Marine, like I, I knew I knew his work ethic was solid and then it, I couldn't imagine, you know, actually was active when we met, but 
uh, now that he's retired, like it's just amazing to see that work ethic and knowing how much that's going to translate to our business as well. So that was really uh, a part of it. And like I said, I'm more of the integrator and he was uh, very much a visionary. So it was like a variety of those things. Like we clicked uh, very compatible goals and very compatible work ethic. And then we complemented each other. We didn't have redundant. We didn't have too many redundant skill sets. Sometimes we fight about who's going to actually underwrite the deal because we both like enjoy underwriting and deal structuring. <laughs> so it sounds like you've learned quite a bit of different types of creative financing um, do you typically use sub two primarily? Are you is that is that your main go to? And and curious what that looks like because I've heard a lot of different types. I guess methods of sub two. Maybe you give can give just a real brief, very quick uh, explanation of what sub two mm-hmm. is, and then how you what your buy box is for a sub two deal. Yeah, definitely. So my start in creative financing, like I said, was seller financing, and I did really advanced creative financing strategies even before joining sub two. Uh, accidentally, it just kind of happened. But going into subject to, sub two or subject to is when you're buying a property subject to its existing mortgage. So you are taking over ownership of the property, but the existing loan, but the loan that's there stays in the seller's name. So that that obviously there has to be a certain motivation for a seller to be willing to do that. If they could sell their property conventionally, uh, at whatever timeline they want, or whatever price they want, like there's no reason for them to do that. But there's certain motivations or certain scenarios in which that's the best case scenario for everyone. One of those is pre foreclosures because when you're when you're taking over a property subject to, especially right now, like we've really expanded on our sub subject to uh, acquisitions because we're taking over two, three, four percent interest rate deals because you can't find that anywhere else. So a lot of deals that don't make sense if you buy them conventionally right now, even at a lower rate even at a lower price just doesn't is not comparable to buying something at 3%, right? So, we're able to offer more to the seller, make it a more seamless transaction, just like you could do with cash kind of, but but you can't offer more with cash. The hard part with cash is you usually have to buy it at a discount with that cash uh for that cash acquisition to make sense. So, with subject to we're able to basically give them a higher purchase price because we're taking over their existing debt. And then if they do have any equity, um, we pay them out on the equity, whether it's cash up front as a down payment or we sell or finance that equity itself. And then I can go into the buy box. Was there any more I could expand on in regards to subject two? But simply like just to expand, simply it's buying the property, taking ownership of it, but the debt stays in the seller's name. What what are the protections in place for that seller if you don't yeah. get the payment? So first and foremost, um, we have the down payment, right? So if whatever we agree to on the down payment, they get that. So if for some reason we get foreclosed on, we don't, we don't perform, then they would get everything back because we include in our contracts, a performance deed, which basically, um, if you're familiar with like the real estate mortgage payments process, you don't get like, if you're 15 days late, you know, they don't just start a, a foreclosure on you, right? It's like at 30 days, you get a little bit of warnings. Maybe there's a late fee assessed and it takes some time. But we have a performance deed in place that's held with title that basically states if we're late by 15 days on the payment, they they take ownership back of the property. That's the simplest way to explain it. And not only do they take ownership back of the property, but they keep uh, all of the down payment that we provided. They keep all of the payments that we made uh, directly on their uh, mortgage, as well as if there's any seller finance payments to them. And any rehab we did to the property, it's uh, they keep that as well. So... That's kind of the protections really in place for them is that performance deed and then the money that we put up front. But a lot of the times, like I said, if someone's going into foreclosure or they have little to no equity, what are their real options? They're either going to lose the property, uh, they're going to have to short sale it, and that's and both of those options are going to ruin their credit. Or we buy it subject to make payments on their behalf, continue building their credit, and then eventually refinance in a better interest rate market. But I'm not going to refinance a 3% loan into a 6, 7, 8, 9% interest loan until the market, you know, fixes itself, I guess. And in terms of, um, so I guess the question on a lot of our listeners' lips will be, where do you find these people? Where do you find, or the property, in fact, where do you find these distressed sellers or people that need this help? 
Yeah, so we basically do the same thing a wholesaler does. We're targeting virtually the same list. We just have more tools in our toolbox to be able to solve that problem. Like I said, if you're going to a pre-foreclosure and someone own, owes, their, let's say someone's loan is at $200,000, or actually here's a better example. Let's do a low equity property. So someone bought the property a year ago, they got a job change, and now they need to sell it, and the market has completely pivoted on them, right? So they are no longer able to sell that property because if they sell it, they're going to have to come out of pocket to pay for that sale because they bought it for 200,000. Even if you list it for $200,000, if anyone's ever purchased the property conventionally, you know, there's a lot of fees baked into that. There's the origination cost loan, whatever. Well, I guess that's more of the sub two getting a new loan, but there's like the, the variety of closing costs. You got to pay the agents, all that stuff. So just cause you sell it for $200,000 doesn't mean you're going to make $200,000 on that deal. And they have a loan in place. So they really can't sell it. And it makes sense that way. So in that scenario, a cash buyer, a cash wholesaler will say, hey, I can buy it from you for 65% of the of what it's worth, of the after repair value. So they can only offer them, what's that, $130,000, but there's a $200,000 loan in place. The seller's willing to take a little bit of a loss, potentially, but not a $70,000 loss, right? So then if we take that over subject two, we're able to offer them that full price, cover all of the closing costs, all that. So then at least they can narrowly escape a potentially bad scenario, not lose the property or ruin their credit and just move on with their life. So it's really finding those motivations. Like I said, one of them is uh, low equity on market. We have expired listing. Someone's tried to sell the property, but they couldn't, you know? Um, so the market told them that price, it was overpriced for the, for, for typically like overpriced for a commercial, uh, a conventional buyer who has to pay six, seven, eight, 9% interest. Um, it's, there's, like I said, pre-foreclosures, um, that's direct to seller. There's, there's a variety of different motivations. Really, it's a lot of trial and error and just tracking your KPIs or your key performance indicators to see like what's working in that time and what's not. Because creative finance wasn't doing so great over the last few years only because it was interest rates were so low. Like, why would you even worry about creative finance? I mean, it's less hassle, but like you might as well just just buy it and get a brand new 30 year fixed rate loan on that at two, three, four, five percent, you know, and um, and sellers were really unmotivated back then when if they just held the property, it went up in value, you know, month over month. So it's just a different market cycle right now. And where creative finance is working a lot better than just typical. But like I said, I do it all. So, it you know, it's just having more tools in your tool belt. Yeah. And in terms of then finding a seller. Is, do you use lists? Do you knock on doors? Do you text, mm-hmm. email, all of the above? What, what, is, what does that look like? Yes, all of the above. Right now, what we're focused on are JVing with others who have done all that groundwork and don't know how to take the deal or take that yeah deal to the finish line. We work with wholesalers who primarily buy cash and would just uh, we educate them on, hey, if, if it hits these criteria, we might actually be able to convert this to a creative deal and then get you some money on that. And we have our own team. Our own team is directly working on direct-to-agent deals. So we pull lists. You can do it through title companies. You can use a variety of software. We utilize PropStream. Uh, there's there's a variety. I, I don't need to list them all, but there's a variety of different uh, tools you can use to just generate those lists. And then depending on if you're reaching out to an agent, you can just find their information online. Or if it's a seller, you just have to skip trace that to get the seller's info and then be able to reach them directly. But like you mentioned, you can go door knocking. I send uh, letters out to certain sellers and I bought one of my best deals um, was a, a letter um, that I sent to a, a, a tired landlord. Um, yeah, we text, we cold call like on my traditional or conventional VAs, they do that. Um, but a lot of it, yeah, is calling right now. It's really a lot of relationship building because at the end of the day, we're not just buying properties, we're solving problems. And that mm-hmm. you can't really solve a problem unless you truly understand what that problem is. So, Can you talk to us about, you said about building relationships. What does that cadence look like in terms of um, developing that relationship, let's say from a letter or from a text message? So it's all going to, it's going to totally change depending on your marketing style, right? So if you're door knocking, you're typically door knocking a distressed property or a pre-foreclosure. Um, so that's a different cadence than it is with because they are truly distressed so you're really trying to solve a problem with a very tight timeline to be able to solve that otherwise their home is on its way to auction 
Um, but when you're text blasting, I think on average, the KPIs, it takes approximately 13 contacts with that person to potentially get a deal out of it. On average, you have to contact that person 13 different times to finally get a deal out of there. With uh, what we're doing with agents, you know, we're always just trying to build rapport. There's four pillars of information you're always trying to gather. It, it changes a little bit on the priority of them. But for me, the number one thing you're always trying to gather is motivation. We no longer waste time on uh, tire kickers, people who might want to sell. We only spend time trying to solve problems for people that truly need to sell. Like I said, we're trying to solve problem, not uh, potentially buy a home from a person who might be interested at some point in the future for the right asking price. For like, no, I, we don't we don't play that game. Like, we're not here to do that. So, um, the first thing we're always looking for is trying to understand the motivation and see if it's even worth our time pursuing this lead further. Because there's just there's a, so many leads in so many markets that like you have to get good at filtering that out first and foremost. And then what we're trying to understand. If it's uh, direct to seller, we're trying to understand what price and what timeline they're looking to sell. Um, and then what condition is the property in? If it's direct to agent, usually there's a listing already. So you know they're trying to sell it as soon as they can. Um, you know the condition of the property because you have the photos and you'll just, you know, you already have the photos there. Um, so we talked motivation, price, and then the price is listed there. You know what price they're ideally looking for, right? So that one's a little easier. So it's different depending on what you're doing. But we're always looking for motivation number one. Because like I said, we're just trying to solve someone's problem. At the end of the day, that's literally all we do. No, I like that. Kyle, you've done a ton of creative stuff, right? Your first deal was creative um, back in the day. Yeah. Yeah, I, I haven't done sub two, um, but I've... I've dabbled in some uh, seller financing deals and uh, some lease option mm-hmm. stuff too. I really like lease options a lot. I think it's underutilized. I don't think people really understand it as much, but it is a uh, it's a great great tool, especially if you already own the place and your your tenant mm-hmm. wants to purchase it. Well, and you're mentioning tool. something huge, right? Creative financing is not just the acquisition of the purchase of the property; it's also yeah. the disposition, like lease optioning it out to someone else, sure. seller financing it, wrapping it, like you can truly maximize the cash flow on a property by a really creative exit as well. If you have all those tools in your toolbox. Absolutely. And Mike, we want to be mindful of your time. What's, what's next for the business? Let me uh, hit one thing though, just to blow your guys' mind about our subject to buy box, like what we're looking for. So what we look for is a cash on cash return of over 30%. We'll buy them as low as 20% and just real simply your cash on cash return is your cash flow, the amount of uh, income you make every month annualized. So just multiply that by 12 after accounting for all of your reserves. So that divided by all the entry costs it took to get into the property. And for us, it you, it's going to include some form of a down payment. It's going to include closing costs. It's going to include um, any marketing or assignment fees we have to pay to a wholesaler, any rehab costs, things like that. So we're looking for a cash on cash return of no less than 20%, ideally 30% and above. We're looking to walk into equity if possible. There's no specific requirement. But if we're walking into equity, we know we're feeling comfortable with that. Um, and then we're also looking to buy it at less than 10% of the sale price itself. We're trying to get the all-in costs at less than 10% of the uh, sale price. So $100,000 property, we're trying to be all-in at $10,000 or less when we buy that property. And that's like unheard of in the conventional side. Like you just can't, you can't structure an investment property like that. You're going to pay 25%. I think 10, 12% is great returns, you know, when it comes to uh, on-market deals. And usually unless you're doing a massive rehab or a distressed property, you're not walking into equity typically. I mean, you can, I guess that's where real value is walking into equity conventionally. That's awesome. Um, How can people get in touch with you? Yeah, so you can follow me on Instagram. I'm trying to post more content. I've never really been too public about a lot of this stuff. I've kind of just been a stealth wealth, just building, you know, accumulating. Um, So M-I-C-H-A-E-L-M-N-A-T, Michael, and the first four letters of my last name. You can check me out on Instagram. I'm putting a few of our seller calls on YouTube. It's not really out there yet. It's really more for our internal team. Um, but Instagram's probably the best place to start. And then um, I'll add a link tree in there so you can kind of keep in touch with what else we're doing because we are growing our wholesale team. But, and we're only doing this because we've helped so many people on an individual basis be able mm-hmm. to close their first few deals. But we've also talked to so many people that say they want to get into real estate and then you're just 
talking to them and talking to them and talking. You're answering all these theoretical questions and whatever, these hypotheticals and whatever. And it's like, hey, go make a few calls or go get into a problem first and let's help you solve that problem. Stop just asking questions. So our whole thing is based on trying to simplify what is it that you have to do? You don't have to know much, but you have to just be willing to take action and we'll guide you through most of the steps. We'll help you, you know, if a transaction is A to Z, all we need you to do is get really good at like B to D. That's all you need to focus on is making that intro call, building rapport, seeing if that's a warm lead and then helping and then working together to underwrite that deal and submit a letter of intent or an LOI. So we just want people to get really proficient one skill at a time. So that's kind of what we're doing when we're expanding our team in that regards. That's amazing. Yeah. So bring your JV deals and uh, connect on Instagram. We'll put your uh, link in the show notes as well. So people can just scroll down and hit that button and, and come say hi. Mike, thank you so much. This has been super informative and, um, yeah, the sub two world is something I'm not particularly au fait with, but it's it's a fascinating piece of uh, real estate kind of uh, strategy. And, and I, uh, I don't mean to add one more thing, but I didn't really talk too much about deals, but just real quickly, just to give you an idea of what we're doing, right? So we bought a, last week or two weeks ago, we bought a property. We took over subject to fully, no money down to the seller. Um, just cover closing costs and all that. 3% interest rate. We're closing a deal this week. It's supposed to be today, but it's going to be tomorrow that a wholesaler brought to us. It was supposed to be a traditional cash purchase. We ended up buying that one subject to as well to give us enough time to do the flip and we'll refinance out of it uh, later. But we're doing that at 3% interest rate with uh, no money down in that scenario. We have another one that's almost a million dollar luxury duplex that the seller has around 15% equity. So we're seller financing his equity, giving him 50K down on that. So buying it for uh, five, is that 5%? I don't know, whatever, 10%? I don't know, whatever. I, I lied, I guess I'm not good at math. But, and then we're taking over his 3% <laughs> interest rate and we're seller financing it at 0%. Just kind of show you the awesomeness of like being able to structure deals yourself instead of the bank telling you, hey, these are your terms. Like, like it or leave it, like that's it. So that's what I really love is being able to structure these deals. Yeah, it really gives you that flexibility to uh, kind of, uh, I guess, factor in that exit strategy as well and kind of plan for that um, in the future. Thank you for listening to the Investories Podcast. We all have a good. That's gold. What's yours? The Investories Podcast. Cool. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Mike. And we'll be back next week.